So this morning, I want to talk about a really practical, uh, useful set of tools that are going to help you in your relationships. Um, and I, I learned, uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me make sure I'm back in the right place here. Uh, we're, we're taking a break from the current series, as Ed said, uh, and, and we're going to zoom in on relationships, and I think this will be really practical and useful to you. Uh, if you have been in the Exodus sermon series, you know Exodus is the second book in the Bible. If you flip back one page to the very end of Genesis, uh, Genesis 50:22 talks about Joseph staying in Egypt, and Joseph and all his family were there with him. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about Joseph's great-granddad, a guy named Abram. And if you look in Genesis chapter 12, that's where Abram's story begins. And I'm going to give you a little background, and then we're going to read uh, part of chapter 13 today because that's the basis for the sermon. So in chapter 12, God calls Abraham and says, hey, Abram, um, that's what he called him at the time, Abram, I want you to follow after me, and I'm going to lead you, and you're going to go with me, and we're going to be on a great adventure, and I will bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless other people. I'm going to bless you in order so that you can be a blessing to others. So Abram leaves and he goes to one spot where the Lord tells him to go and he worships God and then God says, okay, we're going to move on and he goes to another place and he stops and he worships. Sometimes he builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. So that's just how they have this rhythm. He's moving around in chapter 12. Uh, he ends up in the place that we would call the Holy Land today where uh, Israel is and uh, the, the land that eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel and then there was a famine in the land. And so he moved southward to Egypt where food was more readily available. And um, interestingly, his nephew Lot has been with him on this journey. So uh, Abram and his family and all of his flocks and men and shepherds and Lot, along with his family, they're all in Egypt together. The famine lifts and they move back towards uh, the Holy Land. And so that's where chapter 13 picks up. They move back to the area of Canaan, and uh, they move from place to place until they get back to Bethel, which is where Abram had camped out the last time he was in this area, and he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord, and Lot was also with him, and they, these guys were so prosperous at this point. God had blessed them so much. They had so many flocks and herds and servants and, and an entourage, so much wealth, that the land couldn't support all their flocks together. So there became a, kind of a conflict between them. Uh, their herdsmen started arguing, hey, this is where we're going to keep Abram's sheep. No, 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 this is where Lot's sheep are going to go. And, and there was friction developing. So that brings us to where we are in the story this morning. And I'm going to ask you if you would to stand up, and we're going to read this responsively. So I'm going to lead uh, the part that's just in regular print, and then we're going to ask you guys to follow Mike up here on the part that's in bold. And uh, we're going to read through these verses, and it'll kind of give us uh, the content for what we're going to look at today. So, after this conflict develops, Abram says to Lot, please let there be no strife and disagreement between you and me, nor between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, because we're relatives. Is not the entire land before you? Please separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you choose the right, then I will go to the left. So Lot looked and saw that the valley of the Jordan was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was all like the Garden of the Lord, the Garden of Eden. It was like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar at the south end of the Dead Sea. 
Then chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and he traveled east. So they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and camped as far as Sodom, and lived there. But the men of Sodom were extremely wicked and sinful against the Lord, unashamed in their open sin before him. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had left him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are standing, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the grains of dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be counted. Arise, walk, make a thorough reconnaissance around in the land, through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. And then Abram broke camp and moved his tent, and he came and settled by the grove of the great terebinths, the oak trees of Mamre the Amorite, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to honor the Lord. Let me ask you to stay standing. I'm going to pray for us as we jump in, all right? God, thank you so much for your word and the way that it speaks to us if we open our hearts to it. Thank you that your word is true, that it's powerful and life-changing. So I pray that you give us ears to hear and that you would change us as we tune in to what you have to say to us. We pray for Pastor Ed and for those that will hear his message this morning. Uh, we want to lift up people all over the world. There's so many different things going on. There are still places in the world where COVID is ravaging and killing thousands of people every day. And our hearts break for the people of Ukraine, for uh, their desperate cries for peace, for an end to the conflict. We ask you, Lord, would you move in a way that only you can do? Would you divinely intervene and bring hope and peace and healing to that part of the world. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Hey, if, uh, if you're new this morning, I would love to uh, meet you on your way out. Love to chat with you. Um, thank you for being here. I learned a new word this week. Maybe it's one that you're familiar with. It was new to me. It's called breadcrumbing. I don't know if you've heard that. Breadcrumbing, I-N-G on the end. Uh, breadcrumbing is when uh, you drop little relational morsels out there suggesting that you actually want to have a relationship with someone while at the same time maintaining you know, distance and not committing yourself. So it's very common in digital romantic relationships where you, know, like you throw out just enough interest where somebody like stays in your sphere of influence and they don't um, you know, uh, cut off communication, but you, you stay non-committal you know, because you want to weigh all your options. Now, back in the olden days, we call that leading somebody on. Uh, but this happens all the time in relationships that aren't romantic. It, it happens when, when people, like, you know, maybe you have a coworker that comes over every once in a while and kind of leans on your cubicle and chats with you, and you're like, oh, this is cool. Well, you know, we should go out for lunch sometime. Yeah, let's do that. And then you don't see them for another month or two until finally you realize they're just trying to get the secret intel on openings in your department. You know, they don't really want a relationship. They just want enough of a hint of a relationship that they can get information from you. And it just seems to me that uh, as we progress as a society, we're just getting better finding new ways to do relationships badly. In reality, what we need to do is figure out how to do relationships better. 
And this morning, I want to talk to you about recalibrating your relationships. And like I said, this is going to be really practical. Uh, I want to give you some tools that will help you uh, adjust the relationships that you're in and move forward. So let me ask you to think about someone specific with whom you have a complicated relationship. Uh, it could be um, challenging or draining. There's friction or stress. It could be friendship, a coworker, a neighbor, a classmate, a teammate, somebody you're dating, your spouse, your teenagers, your aging parents, someone you go to church with. Oh, by the way, no elbowing here, okay? Like you're just supposed to keep this to yourself. But I want you to think of a specific person with whom you have a challenging relationship. And whatever connection you have with that person, uh, this encounter between Abram and Lot points out four really helpful ideas that could change the nature of that relationship. So Abram and Lot, as we look at their story, we're going to talk about uh, conflict management and healthy boundaries, what I would call an other's orientation and a long-term perspective. So first, let's take a look at the map uh, just so you got a better idea of how this story unfolds. When God calls Abram, he's off in another part of the world. God calls him to the Middle East. So uh, he ends up in that area called Canaan, uh, bordered on the left by the Mediterranean Sea, and on the right there's the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee at the top end, and the Dead Sea at the bottom. And then the famine leads he and Lot to Egypt, and they go to a very fertile region in the Nile Delta, and they live there for a while until the famine passes. And then they come back the very same way that they went. They can't really venture too far, too far to the south or the east because it's just desert. So there was a fairly well-established sort of highway, pathway, where travelers went from Egypt back to the Middle East, and they end up uh, in this area, generally, between where Abram and Lot are. The conflict arises, and they separate and Lot heads south to the area south of the Dead Sea on either side of the Jordan River. And Abram ends up not far from where he was the chapter before. Uh, Hebron, the village where uh, he built this altar in chapter 13, is just maybe 10 or 15 miles south of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It's the same area that Jesus ministered in, in Judah. So um, this is familiar territory uh, to um, those of us that that have a little bit of knowledge about the Bible. And so uh, the problem arises. The land where they're all together, that is not sufficient to support everybody's needs. So conflict arises, and that's the first big area we want to look at. It's conflict management. And if we want to move our relationships toward health, conflict management is something that we have to get good at. We don't have to go looking for conflict. For some weird reason, conflict comes and finds us. It tracks us down. Uh, we're broken people living in a broken world, so of course there's conflict. And conflict isn't always bad. Sometimes conflict is sort of like the exterior symptom of an underlying problem. And it lets us know that we need to pay attention to some underlying condition. So conflict will come up and we need to get better at working through it without blowing up the relationship. Now, uh, kids, when you came in, uh, hopefully you got a bag and you got a black piece of paper and it has, uh, it's folded in fourths. And so one of the things that I want to ask you to do is, as I talk through these four points, I would love for you to take your white uh, pencil and draw four different pictures. So every time we get to a new point, I'm going to challenge you to draw a picture, and I'll even give you an example. Uh, 
And then later on today, maybe at lunch or tonight at bedtime, you can talk to your parents and explain what you drew a picture of and why, and you can remind them of all the stuff they've already forgotten about the sermon. So uh, the first picture that goes with conflict management, it might look like this. Maybe it's about a fight or a disagreement between two people. Conflict management uh, is not something that we're just naturally good at. Uh, conflict management, actually, in this story, uh, we see four really distinct uh, elements that go into it. And the first one is initiative. So if we want to get good at managing conflict, we have to take initiative. So Abram approaches Lot and says, hey, I think we've got a problem. We need to talk about this. He starts a conversation. Now, I've been married for a while, and sometimes starting a conversation seems challenging. You know, a lot of times, I, my default is like, maybe she didn't even notice I said that. You know, like, maybe, maybe she's not really mad. She's just distracted. I'm going to see how this goes in a couple hours, and then maybe I'll start a conversation. Well, that's not what Abram does. Abram realized that the first step in working through a problem is to get it on the table. Sometimes we make the excuse, well, it's not my fault. They, they're the ones that did me wrong, so I'm going to wait for them to come to me. But remember... In Matthew uh, chapter 18, Jesus says, when a brother or sister wrongs you, when somebody else hurts you, offends you, you go to them. You take the initiative and work through it privately with them. It can start with an invitation. Hey, uh, can we sit down and talk about what happened the other night? Or if you're not sure, you could ask a question. Hey, um, I don't know, it seems like maybe I did something to put distance between us. Can we talk about that? Uh, but, but getting the issue on the table, taking the initiative, that's the first step. Uh, beyond taking the initiative, Abram also used a clear goal. At the very beginning, he set out a clear goal that was unifying, it was respectful, it was overarching. He's not focused on winning the fight or inflicting damage on Lot or venting his anger. He, he focuses on something far bigger than the immediate conflict. And he says, hey, Lot, we're kinsmen. I mean, like, we're related by blood. We've been together for a long time. We've traveled many miles. And I, I feel like we can work through this. There shouldn't be conflict like this. Let's come up with a solution. So that's the goal. At the end of the day, uh, we want to be friends. We want to still be family. And a lot of times, just starting the discussion the right way, by voicing a clear, overarching goal that's mutually beneficial to both parties, it sets the stage for the conversation that follows. It takes the edge off, and it kind of sets us in the right direction for uh, growing our relationship in, the, in a more healthy way. Another element of conflict management that Abram shows us is the value of wise words. You know, if you use the wrong kinds of words in a conflict situation, you can just throw fuel on the fire. But if you use the right kind of words, you can smother the flames. You can soothe the situation. So Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs is full of great insight on the right kinds of words we should use. But in the New Testament, we also find teaching about using the right kind of words. So James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 1.19 and 20, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. 
So hopefully you're getting the point here. The right kinds of words can be really helpful in managing conflict. One final element that I want to point out from this passage about conflict management is that Abram proposes a reasonable solution. So the idea that he pitches to Lot is already a pretty reasonable solution. It's realistic. He's not trying to stir things up. He's uh, generous. He's respectful. It's a real-world proposal that addresses the actual issues. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship like this, but you know sometimes people that are dating, uh, they, they get into a fight. And it's like, okay, fine. Let's just say it's all my fault. We'll break up and go on our separate ways. That'll fix it. Fine. Well, that, that's not really a, a realistic solution. That doesn't fix the problem. That's just like heaps something on the other person. Maybe it makes them back off. Maybe it, it, they calm down and like, oh, okay, we'll do it your way. What, what we're called to do if we really want to manage conflict well is to come up with reasonable solutions. So taking initiative, starting with a clear goal, using wise words, focusing on reasonable solutions, all of those are really helpful in the arena of conflict management. But there's a second area that can help us in recalibrating relationships, and that's healthy boundaries. In other words, I have, a, I have a good idea of what my responsibility is and what your responsibility is. I know what I have control over and what control rightfully belongs to someone other than me. So take a look at this picture. And I just want to point out uh, the angelic face on the right. That's me. Uh, so uh, my brother was five years older. My sister was seven years older. I never gave my parents problems. The other two were troublemakers. Uh, but... Uh, I learned very early about boundaries. My sister had her own room. The guys had to share a room. And so my sister had her stuff in her room, and her doorway was a boundary. And uh, when I didn't seem to um, always appreciate that boundary, she would close the door. And when her irritating brother, who's five years young, seven years younger for her, opened the door, she learned to lock the door. But then her really smart little brother realized that the key to the door was on the, the door frame, you know, above. And if you got the yardstick, you could knock that thing off and unlock the door. And then I got a lesson in boundaries that when I opened the locked door, my sister had a, a metal baton, you know, like a drum major would carry. I think she just had it for self-defense, and she would whack me vigorously with that if I violated her boundaries. Now, as adults, probably we shouldn't carry metal batons around and whack each other when we don't pay attention to boundaries, but I have a feeling we'd do a much better job respecting each other's boundaries if we did. So healthy boundaries really are important. I spend a lot of time, uh, the, the counseling that I do with people, generally people don't call me and ask for financial advice, and that, that's wise on their part. Very seldom do I have people call with theological questions, but that occasionally happens. The overwhelming majority of the time, it's about relationship stuff, and most of it has to do with boundaries. So uh, here's another slide that would give you an idea of, of boundaries. By the way, Michelle Bowden put these together. I appreciate her creativity in this. Uh, kids, if you look at that picture, uh, that's a really good uh, depiction of a boundary. So a fence reminds you where your yard ends and where somebody else's begins. You're welcome to play in your yard and leave your toys out in your... Well, okay, maybe your parents don't want you to do that. But your yard is one thing. You don't play in somebody else's yard unless you have permission. So draw a picture about, about boundaries. Maybe it's your backpack. Because the stuff in your backpack when you go to school, that's your stuff. 
And other kids aren't supposed to reach in and mess with your stuff, right? Or maybe it's your lunchbox, and you draw a picture of that. Or your bike. You don't have to take care of every bike in the world, but you do have to take care of your bike. Those are all examples of boundaries. Now, uh, when we think about Abraham and, uh, Abram and Lot and their working relationship, they started running into problems. Their herdsmen originally had worked together, and that was a great solution because they were in a strange new land. There were these other people, the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. What if they wanted to steal their sheep? And if you got both flocks together, uh, then the herdsmen were more effective. You know, let's get them all down to the river and water. Let's move them all up here. There's a great pasture. We can feed them all. But as, as they prospered and as their flocks grew, that was no longer a working solution. So Lot uh, and Abram decided, let's just split. You go over here, and I'm going to go over here. How many times have parents with, with multiple kids have you used that kind of a boundary? Sit in that chair. You, over there. Don't. Don't come out until dinner time. Stay there. So they separated really clear boundaries. Now, in some relationships, boundaries are easier to spot than others. So when you get a job, oftentimes your employer will give you a job description. It says exactly what they want you to do. And it helps you clarify, oh, it's not my job to do that. That, that belongs to somebody else. But this, this is the stuff that I'm responsible for. But at other times, uh, different boundaries like with friends and neighbors and family, those are a little tougher to identify and uphold. Sometimes people overstep their boundaries and they take on responsibilities that really are not theirs. They try to fix someone else's problems when that's not their job and they don't have control over how other people feel. They try to make someone else love them or respect them. Uh, that's not going to work. That, that's an inappropriate boundary. On the other hand, there are times where people don't really step up to the boundary line. They don't recognize what's their responsibility. So they blame their shortcomings on someone else. Or they don't, they don't take, care of their own, take care of their own mess. They leave it for someone else to clean up. Or they blame their failures on somebody else. So whenever boundaries are violated, they're going to be relational problems. So we have to pay a lot of attention to them. We need to revisit them often and make sure that we've got a clear picture of the boundaries. Okay, uh, we've talked about uh, conflict management, about healthy boundaries. A third thing that we find in this passage, a third essential for recalibrating our relationships, is what I would call an other's orientation. So let's take a look at uh, this drawing. Uh, you'll notice in an other's orientation, there, there are several people there, right? It's not just one person. And so often we find ourselves in a relationship with other people, but under the mistaken assumption that it's about me. But if there are other people in the picture, we have to factor them in. We have to think about the other person. Abram gives us a great example of this because he gives Lot the first choice of the land. Even though he's the older relative, he has more authority and respect in the family, and he's the one that God promised the land to in Genesis chapter 12. But Abram knows that God is trustworthy and generous, and if he handles this situation rightly, God is going to bless him, regardless of what Lot decides. I mean, it would have been awesome if Lot had said like, oh no, Abram, you take the first choice and I'll take whatever's left over. He didn't do that. And, and from the initial glance at things, it feels like he got the best land. But Abram realized that he needed to be willing to put the needs and concerns of his nephew Lot ahead of his own stuff. That's the exact attitude that Paul talks about in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 2. 
So in Philippians 2, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, this is, this is really clear. Don't be motivated by selfish desires or conceit. Instead, God wants us to have an attitude of humility. Not that we disregard our own interest. He says, don't look just to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And consider them better than yourselves. Your attitude, your outlook, your perspective, it's supposed to look like Jesus. And let's think about what Jesus did. And, and really, Paul is, is telling us the gospel, the good news about Jesus here. He says, think about Jesus Christ, who was in very nature God. He was co-equal with God. He was enthroned in eternal glory in heaven. And yet, he didn't consider that equality with God something to hold tightly to. He willingly released that equality in order to humble himself and step into human time and space as a servant because of his love for us. And not only did he humble some, himself that way, he humbled himself even further by obeying God's plan and laying down his life for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a fresh start with God. He paid the price for our sins so that we didn't have to. He settled a debt we could not pay. And uh, all that time, that was motivated not by self-interest, but by his love for us. And if we are Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, then we need to have that same attitude, that same willingness, that same bias toward self-sacrifice, toward selflessness. If you've uh, never made a personal decision uh, to trust Jesus, to follow him, to invite him to be the leader and forgiver in your life, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'd love to email you or connect you with somebody here who could give you uh, some more information, answer questions, talk with you through that. Uh, this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, accepting what Jesus did on the cross. And that's the attitude that's supposed to uh, characterize those of us who follow him. So we want to pray for the well-being and the success of the other person in the relationship, even if they've hurt us. We want to build in the practice of yielding to other people, of, of just out of a gracious heart, like, you know, when you're in traffic and you allow space and go like, ah, come on, you can come on in. I mean, I know that didn't happen here, but I'm just saying, theoretically, uh, somebody letting someone else in traffic, that's thinking uh, of someone else's best interest. We need to consciously try to figure out not only what's best for us, but we set that aside and then kind of look at it with a different perspective and we want to see what's best for the other person. I mean, even our kids get this, right? Hey, do you want to play chess or checkers? Checkers, okay, let's play checkers. We should take our cue from our kids. Um, and developing another's orientation can make a huge difference in the quality of a relationship. Okay, uh, one last drawing uh, that I want to ask you guys uh, to draw. And this has to do with a long-term perspective. And here's somebody looking through a, a telescope. Uh, this, the idea here is of looking at the bigger picture. 
Um, when you're not focused on the short-term win, you can develop a long-term perspective. You can think about what's going to happen over the big expanse of time. So Abram wasn't just thinking about this immediate situation, getting his flocks taken care of. He was thinking over the long haul, how do I keep my family together? And he wanted to honor God over the long haul. What's really cool about this is once he makes that decision and Lot leaves and heads in his own direction, uh, then the Lord says to Abraham, okay, now lift your eyes, look from the place where you're standing, north and south and east and west, all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will give this to you and your descendants forever. And that's a long-term perspective, right? God repeats to Abram the same response that he made to him in chapter 12. You're an old man. You don't have any kids, but you're going to have children. In fact, your offspring are going to be so innumerable uh, that their, their legacy is going to impact things forever. Well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that God wasn't just talking to Abram about his uh, biological offspring. He was talking to Abram about his spiritual offspring. And all those who express their faith in God and choose to follow in the same path that Abram did have become his spiritual children. So that's us. And that number continues to grow. And it's uncountable, all of those who have chosen to follow God over the years and all those who have yet to make that decision. But we're the spiritual descendants of Abram. From a short-term perspective, Lot got the best deal, right? He got the good land. But from a long-term perspective, Abram made the right choice and God used him to bless the whole world. Uh, social scientists tell us it takes an average of 66 days to develop a new habit. So if you want to drink more water, I want to drink 64 ounces of water a day. It's going to take you on average about 66 days to, to build that into the fabric of your life. I'm going to take the steps instead of the elevator. It's going to take you about two and a half months to get there before that's a regular pattern in your life. Well, why is it so shocking to us that when it comes to something more complicated, something having to do with relationships, that a long-term perspective is needed? We typically underestimate the time necessary for substantial, to, for substantial change to occur. So, um, parents, if you're experiencing friction with your teenagers and you pray for a whole week, that's awesome. Uh, we need to sit down when your kid's 25 and then we'll talk. And, and you'll have a completely different perspective, okay? Uh, there are just some seasons in life that are going to be hard. If you've lost a loved one or a relationship or a job, that's going to be a difficult season, and it's going to take time to work through that. If there's been a relational blow-up, you want to have a long-term perspective. That's really important to keep in mind. So uh, just think about what we've talked about this morning. So we've talked about four different things. We've talked about uh, conflict management. We've talked about healthy boundaries. We've talked about an other's orientation, and we've talked about a long-term perspective, Right? Those are four really useful, helpful tools that you can put in your relational toolbox and they will help you recalibrate your relationships. They'll help you do relational tune-ups with whoever that person is that I ask you to think about at the beginning of the service. These are, these are tools we ought to use regularly. We need to be skillful in them. And that just means practice, right? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and I'm going to ask you to think about the person that came to mind at the beginning of the message. And I want you to bow your heads and just take 60 seconds to pray silently 
And maybe God has brought something to your attention as I've uh, walked us through this passage this morning. Or maybe he's brought some other idea to mind. But let's ask God in that particular relationship, is there anything that he wants you to do to move it in the direction of, of health, to move it into a, a, a helpful direction? Let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Father in heaven, uh, you are a relational God. You valued a relationship with us so much that you sent your only son to die in our place so we could be reconciled to you, so that we could walk with you and interact with you day by day and have your power at work in our lives. Thank you so much for caring about us that much. We know that relationships matter to you, so they need to matter to us. And I pray for the, the difficult relationships, the the relationships where there's conflict or a complication. And I ask that you would give us wisdom, give us insight. Holy Spirit, direct us. Help us to see what we need to stop doing. Help us to recognize what we need to do more of to be able to fine-tune that relationship, to move it in a healthy direction, and to honor you in the way that we connect with the people around us. I pray for endurance this week, Lord. I ask that you would encourage us in our relationships. I pray that you direct our paths. Give us ears to hear as we uh, try to navigate deep waters and, and um, step into things that may be complicated. We know you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. Help us to be reconcilers and people who refresh other people, people who are encouragers. We just want our relationships, God, to honor you. So help us. We ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.